Now, before we dig into this uh, enigmatic passage, I want to pick up what was said earlier back in chapter 8, verse 13, and which we'll see uh, throughout uh, the, the coming passages. The three woes, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So these last three trumpets in the seven are described as woes. What's been said here? Did you know that the word woe is heard from the lips of Jesus more than any other person in the Bible? In fact, he uses the word woe about the same number of times that he uses the word blessed. We're familiar with his words of blessing, aren't we, in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Here's a version of them in Luke. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Maybe we're not so familiar though with the words immediately after this. But woe to you who are rich, for you have reached your, received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. See how the woes are the reversal of the blessings. Woe is a pronouncement of a curse, a curse from God. And to be cursed by God is to have his blessing removed from you. The good that the blessing promises to be is turned around and it becomes our destruction. Now, the the woes that Jesus pronounced in his ministry were particularly directed at those who knew the truth but had rejected it or twisted it. So he especially aims his woes at the scribes and the Pharisees who knew God's word, who were tasked with teaching God's word, but they were adding to it and they were twisting it in order to control and have power over people. The reason Jesus declared blessings and woes in his ministry is because he is the fulfilment of what was foreshadowed by Joshua. As Joshua led the people into the promised land, uh, he was told that they were to pass between two mountain peaks, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And Levites stood on each mountain. The Levites on Mount Gerizim pronounced the blessings that would come to Israel if, as they lived in the land, they heard God's word and obeyed it. The Levites on Mount Ebal 
pronounce the curses that would come if they heard God's word and refused to listen and disobeyed it. So Jesus comes as the new, the better Joshua to lead his new covenant people into the promised land of life and freedom that he won by his cross and he continues to lead his people forward as we anticipate the new heavens and the new earth of which the land of Israel was a foreshadowing. And so he too speaks of the blessings that will come to anyone who comes into this new covenant by faith. But he also gives a solemn warning of woe to those who hear the gospel but persist to reject it. So why are these last three trumpets described as woes? Because if we ignore the clarion call of the gospel, we do so to our own peril. If we reject what Christ has done for us in his atoning death, there is no other place for us to go. Jesus isn't an option among many. He himself said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That should give us a sense of urgency. If you're not a believer in Jesus, the urgency is to come to him and in faith and to receive the mercy that he freely offers you before the time runs out. If you are a believer, then the urgency is for us to answer the call to be participants in God's mission to make the name of Jesus known to every corner of the earth, beginning with our little corner here in Maylands and Adelaide. That's the primary mission of the church. Therefore, it's the primary mission of every member of the church. We're ambassadors. We are heralds of the kingdom of God and of the age to come. And that is the main point of this sixth trumpet. Remember how in the seven seals we saw a description of the visible, physical judgments of God going out into the earth in seals one to four, followed by the unveiling of the spiritual realities behind them in seals five to seven. And when we were looking at the seals, we also asked the question, well, where are the people of God? in the midst of these judgments. What did we see? The people of God were there as martyrs under the altar, being kept safe, clothed in white robes and given that sure hope of finally standing before the throne of God as the 144,000 with God's name on their forehead and as the great multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation When we understand God's judgments to be judgments of hope, we can rest secure in his promise that he will complete the work he's begun. But here we are seeing God's judgments as judgments of mercy directed out to those in the world. It's the megaphone that God uses to rouse a deaf world, as C.S. Lewis says. 
when we understand God's judgments as judgments of mercy, we see our place as God's people from a different angle. We see that we are then the ones sent out into the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Now last time, last week, before the trumpets were blown, we saw one way in which we are drawn in to participate in that uh, work of God and it was through prayer, symbolised by this golden altar of incense. And in 9 verse 13 we're taken back to this altar. Now the voice that John hears could be that of the angel who offered the incense of the prayers of the saints and then took the coals from the altar and threw them down on the earth as a sign of prayer being answered. But the fact is it comes from the horns of the altar and it makes me think it's actually the voice of Jesus. Now there's all kinds of speculation Uh, amongst scholars and historians about what the horns on the altar represented. Uh, There were horns on the altar of sacrifice and horns on this small altar of incense that was inside the holy place. But there's two things that we're told about the horns of the altar in the Old Testament. The first thing we're told is that when Israel sinned in a corporate way when there was a corporate guilt on the whole community. The priest was to make a sacrifice and he was to take some of the blood of the sacrifice and go into the holy place and smear the blood on the four horns of this altar of incense. It was a sign that their sin has been taken away through the sacrifice and now the way is still clear for their prayers to be heard by God. The second thing we hear about the horns on the altar is that there was an understanding, it's not, it's not specified in the law, but there was an understanding that if someone who was guilty of a serious crime, worthy of the death penalty, they could go to the tabernacle and they could cling to the horns of the altar as a sign of repentance and a plea for leniency and mercy. So whatever else the horns were there for, they speak of mercy and they point forward to Jesus. The blood smeared on the altar of the cross takes away our sin. And we can flee to the cross and we can lay hold of the cross knowing that because of the blood of Christ we can plead for mercy and we will not receive what our sins deserve. So this command, whether it's Jesus or just the altar speaking, this command going out from the horns of the altar reinforces this idea that the judgment that's coming through these for angels is still a judgment of mercy, even though it's described in such a severe way. 
Did you notice that just like the judgments before it, it's limited. It's limited to a third. So it's still a trumpet call to wake up and to repent. Now, remember how the first four trumpets echoed the plagues that were sent upon Egypt. This one here, uh, with the sixth trumpet, resembles the tenth and final plague that was on Egypt. The, The first nine plagues came upon the natural world, the animals and the land and the, the rivers. This tenth plague struck the firstborn sons of Egypt right up to Pharaoh himself. That tenth plague was Pharaoh's final warning. It was the plague that made him change his mind and to let the Israelites go, even if it was just for a short time before he changed it back and sent his armies to pursue his fleeing slaves. Tragedies and disasters, they may wake us up, they may make us wonder if there's more to life, but being confronted with death is like a slap in the face because we're confronted with our own mortality. Every time I attend a funeral, I must remind myself that one day I'll be the one in the box. And so I need to ask myself, am I ready to face God, my judge? Recently I've had the privilege of visiting people, some people in hospital who have come face to face with their own mortality Uh, Dear sister Margaret is there in hospital at the moment. Uh, Last time I spoke to her, she expressed the confidence and the trust that she has in her Lord who holds all of her days in her hands. I left from those visits feeling more encouraged by their faith than maybe they were by mine. But around the same time, I also spoke to a doctor who deals a lot with patients who are in palliative care and she said she's noticed something recently. There's a a growing frequency of people who are expressing a fearfulness at their impending death because they don't have any hope beyond the grave. What a contrast that shows the wonderful assurance that Jesus gives us beyond our death in both life and death. Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century American theologian, wrote a series of resolutions through his life. When he was still a young man, he wrote this, number nine, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Does it sound a bit morbid? Pondering the certainty of my own death shouldn't lead to morbidity or morbid introspection but to a deeper trust in Jesus who has conquered death for me and to resolve 
to not waste the short life that I have, but to live for his glory. But see what happens, though, in verses 20 to 21 of chapter 9. Even when faced with the warning of the final judgment of death, humanity doesn't repent. There's a real irony here in the description in verse 20. People have seen the works of God in these judgments, but they still prefer to hold on to the works of their own hands. Idols made of metal, stone and wood. These idols, we're told, they can't see them when they approach to worship. They can't hear them when they pray. And they can't go and act in answer to the prayers. These idols of stone and metal and wood. Idolatry isn't just something that's morally wrong. It's also foolish. It's stupid. It's putting the confidence that we should have in the living God not only in something within creation but in something that we have fashioned with our own hands. We want to be gods who are in control of the world around us to be creators with our hands but in the futility of our darkened hearts we don't realise that we have just become slaves to those things that we worship. And the pull of our affection for our idols is so strong that even severe judgments in creation aren't enough to overcome it. Romans 1 tells us, for his, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made So they are without excuse. These things are not just the wonder and the beauty and the order of creation that speaks of an intelligent designer, but it's also creation in turmoil. The disasters that speak of creation under wrath that communicate to us that God is not just the creator but God is also the judge who's determined to bring about justice in his world. Creation leaves us all without excuse. However, the evidence of God in creation is in itself insufficient to bring a sinner to repentance and faith. Even though it should be enough, the wickedness of the human heart is so deep that when we're faced with the plainest of proof, we refuse to give up our self-sufficient, self-righteous independence, our idolatry of ourselves. So judgments in creation and even being faced with death itself, it might pulverise our foundation and it might realise how tenuous life is, but it's only a preparation for the thing that has actual power to change our hearts, which is God's word of the Gospel. To use an illustration from Jesus' parables, the judgments of mercy, these judgments in creation, are like the plough 
that digs and turns the soil and makes it into the good soil that is receptive to the seed, which is the word of God. The more testimonies I hear over time of how people have come to faith in Jesus, the more I hear of people facing difficulty and sadness and grief, which the Holy Spirit uses to open up their hearts so they can see clearly their need for Jesus, not just in that time of difficulty but in all of life. So many people who are brought up in Christian families are allowed by the sovereign, gracious hand of the Father to go out like the prodigal son so that they can experience the futility of life in the pigsty and realise how good it will be for them to return to the home of the Father. That's why those of us who have children and grandchildren who have wandered from the faith, we shouldn't be too fearful when they face difficulties and hardships. Rather, we should see them as ways that the Father is using to prepare the soil of their heart to hear his word once again. So, the judgments of mercy are not complete with just the first five trumpets. The sixth trumpet shows us the second and most vital way in which we, his people, are called not only to repentance but also to faith and how we as God's people are called in to participate in what God is achieving through these trumpets. In verse 10, uh, sorry, chapter 10, verses 1 to 3, we see this mighty angel coming down from heaven. Now, every aspect of the description of this angel is taken from earlier visions of God on the throne and of Jesus as the Son of Man. The, the cloud with which he's wrapped speaks of the glory of God, like the cloud that was wrapped around Mount Sinai. The rainbow over his head takes us back to the throne, with the rainbow around the throne, speaking of God's covenant faithfulness. His face like the sun and his legs like fire take us back to Jesus who had feet of of burnished bronze, the colour of fire, and his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. And then the scroll in his hand reminds us of the scroll in the hand of the Father seated on the throne. The only difference is this scroll is a little scroll, but also it's open. The message that it contains is available for all to see. And then his feet on the land and on the sea tell us that what he has in this scroll is of global significance. It impacts all of creation, the land and the sea, and it impacts all people, people on the land and people on the islands, in the seas. And his voice, like a roaring lion, makes us think of 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, whose victory was announced in chapter 5. So all of this imagery together makes me conclude that this mighty angel is a representation of Jesus himself. He's taken upon himself the mandate to establish a new covenant symbolised by the rainbow. Because he is worthy, he has taken the scroll from the hand of the Father, he's opened it up and now he holds it out so that all may see its contents. As he calls out with uh, this roaring voice like a lion, we're told that the seven thunders sounded. Now this is imagery that's taken out of Psalm 29 which mentions the voice of the Lord bringing judgment on creation and it's seven times we see the voice of the Lord is over the waters, the glory of God thunders the Lord over many waters and then seven times throughout that psalm the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. As we know, the number seven signifies divine perfection and completion. So these seven thunders that John hears signifies the completion of God's judgment, which we're told in verse 7 will happen with the blowing of the seventh trumpet. But what's John told? Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down for the moment. Sealing up prophecy means putting it on hold because it's something that is to be revealed at a later date. We see that several times in the book of Daniel. So this is a picture of the final judgment being delayed in God's patience while something else crucial takes place to prepare people for the preaching of the gospel. So we come to verse 8 and what's happening here is really a reenactment of what Jesus meant when he said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Remember Jesus took the scroll from the right hand of the Father and by doing so he took upon himself the responsibility to administer God's judgments and to reign over his redeemed people, the church. Now he holds an open scroll and he calls us to come and take it and by doing so we take up the responsibility to be his ambassadors to the nations. This is the one with all authority in heaven and earth who commands us to go and make disciples of all nations and to do so with a solemn sense of urgency because we know that for the moment the seven thunders are being withheld but the time for the seventh trumpet being blown could be just around the corner. John's told to do two things with this scroll. 
First, in verse 9, he is to eat it. And then second, in verse 11, he's told to speak its contents as he prophesies to peoples, nations, languages and kings. You can't be a prophet unless you've first digested God's words and they've become a part of you. You can't be part of this great commission unless you're feeding on and being nourished by God's word, the gospel that you've been called to go and preach. If you feel reticence or if you feel fearful about stepping out and being part of the work of the gospel, well, the solution isn't to try and just hype yourself up and pretend that you're courageous when you're not. It's not to just sit there and wait for a sudden outpouring of the Spirit to turn you into a fearless evangelist. No, the solution is simply to be regularly, often immersing yourself in the Word of God, allowing it to come into you and to dwell in you richly, to shape your mind and your heart so that more and more you have the mind of Christ. God's Word has to be sweet as honey to you. Even the confronting parts, like this passage, because the more and more you eat of the sweetness of His Word, the more sweet and desirable He will be to you. But we must also be prepared for what it will be like to take this word, this sweet word, to the nations. John is told and he finds out by experience that this sweet tasting word makes his stomach turn bitter. Now the prophet Ezekiel had a very similar experience and from his experience we can see what this bitterness is about. Is what Ezekiel was told. You son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me and it had writing on the front and on the back and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. You recognise this scenario? And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to them, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you. For they are not willing to listen to me because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. 
So Ezekiel, like John, is told that the word of God that is sweet to him won't be received in the same way to those to whom he preaches. Do you see the irony here? Israel has no excuse for not listening and not understanding because they speak the same language. They've heard God's word in their own tongue but they're put to shame by the fact that those who will struggle to understand the language will still believe because they see the urgency of the message. So we shouldn't be deluded into thinking that sharing the gospel isn't a difficult task. It's not easy. It's scary. It's difficult. And often we give it a try and we stumble and we come out of it thinking, I don't know if I said anything of worth. We know the sweetness of the word of God and the assurance that it gives us and we desire others to know it too. As we heard last week from Amos, the Lord God has spoken who can but prophesy. When God takes hold of you and speaks to you, you won't be able to contain it. You'll have no choice but to speak of the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. But we'll also know the bitterness of that word falling on deaf ears, of being met with indifference or ridicule, seeing those that we love reject the truth and feeling at a, at a loss as to what to do or to say because we know that their rejection of the gospel means that they're under judgment. It should grieve us when we see people ignore Jesus or when we see people turn away from professing faith in him. God himself tells us he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that grief, that bitterness in our stomachs of the word falling on deaf ears shouldn't discourage us, it should spur us on to recognise the seriousness of this call that Jesus gives his church. See how John isn't given a choice in this. Prophesying to peoples, nations, languages and kings. It's not something he's free to choose based on his personal preferences or his career path or whatever. He's told you must, again, prophesy. The word must means it's a necessary part of his calling. As if to say, almost whether you like it or not, it's going to happen. You can't see what you've seen and hear what you've heard and remain silent. And this word, again, means it's an ongoing, repeated thing. It's to be his core business the thing that he's known for, the lifestyle that flows out of his identity. So next week in chapter 11, still within this sixth trumpet, we'll see how this urgency, this necessity of testifying to Jesus is a responsibility placed upon us as the church. 
We may not all be prophets, we may not all be evangelists, but we are all members of the body of Christ. We are members of a prophetic community that has been called and commissioned by Jesus to be the embassy of his kingdom here on earth. Heralds of the good news that Jesus is Lord. So to be a member of the body of Christ is to be a participant in his mission, whether you like it or not. So will you hear the call and uh, follow him?